Ecclesiastes is where we're at. You guys got your Bibles, you got your swords, your weapons, pull them out, go to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. So we're, we're working our way right through here. Uh, the wind is going to give me problems. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7 is going to be our text today, which says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few, for a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one that you must fear. If you've been with us in Ecclesiastes so far, you know that everything, the theme of what Solomon's doing is he's trying to tear down um, the false idea that all of us can carry in ways that there is something under the sun other than God that can fix us, that can bring us satisfaction, that can bring us fulfillment, or that even can save us in ways that we think we need to be saved. And so what he's doing is he's going through and he's pulling back the covers one by one on all of our idols, all of those things that you and I run to um, for satisfaction and for purpose and for meaning. And his conclusion after he goes to each of them is the same. They're empty. They can't do it. They're, in, they're incapable. It's an impossibility for the things under the sun that God has created to be our proverbial savior. It doesn't work. And we're left empty. We're left empty after we go there. And um, Solomon would know because he's probably the richest dude that ever lived. Uh, there was nothing he didn't have at any time that he wanted. Uh, he tried everything, and he's just kind of letting us in on that. He's sharing that with us. Look, I have ran to these things, and I have personally tried them, and they have left me miserable and hopeless still. And it's the same for you and I. And so what he's doing is he's going through Ecclesiastes is he's, he's hitting creation. Some of us will run into, run to created things rather than the creator to find fulfillment, and it ain't there. And he talks about politics. We will put our, our, our hopes sometimes in government or organizations or powerful people, and it's not there. Um, he talked about accumulation, uh, materialistic um, um, endeavors. If I just buy this thing, it's going to fix me. None of you have done that, but like if you were, um, and, it, and it wouldn't work. So he's going through all of this, and then what he comes to today might surprise us a little bit. But what he's going to talk about today is vanity in religion. Vanity in our religion. And I want you to know, I don't know if I've ever said this to you before, um, these messages are for us first when we put them together, for the pastors. Um, we're, we're not sitting here putting them together thinking of so-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so and then writing it for those people. Like, we are coming and we are bumping ourselves up against and examining ourselves against these texts. And I want you to know that I love you before I say some of the things I'm about to say, okay? And we're all good. That's right, you can laugh. Yeah. Okay. So I have a question I want to start with this morning. 
temperatures are good today. This is good. If Satan was fully in control of everything on earth, because he's not right now, some of you might have that false theology, uh, he is in ways in control, but he's still, he's, he's still a dog on God's leash. Like, like he has to answer to him first. He can only do what God allows him to do. So, so let's consider for a second, if that wasn't true, if he was fully in control of everything on earth, what would it look like? What would it look like if God removed the leash on Satan? What would this world look like? I, I think most of us would, would initially think, well, everything would be blatantly as evil and blatantly as backwards and wicked as, it, as we could possibly imagine, like Sodom and Gomorrah type deal all the time, right? Um, where where uh, unspeakable evils are unpunished and promoted uh, everywhere. And that's one perspective of what it might look like. That's reasonable. But there's another one. Donald Barnhouse, he's, a, he's an old school commentator. You might have seen his commentaries before. He once answered this question to his congregation. And he answered it like this. I don't necessarily think it would be a world where evils are as loud and proud as they could be. But quite possibly one where bars are closed, streets are clean, people are respectful and compliant, and churches everywhere would be filled to capacity where Jesus isn't preached and God isn't feared. It's an interesting... It's, it's, it's the complete opposite of the first imagining, but it's just as satanic, if you think about it. It could easily be one where religion is a common reality and activity of the common citizen, but not because they fear God, and not because the redemptive work of Christ has grabbed hold of them, but because they want to feel good about themselves. I mean, let's face it, our churches all across this country are filled with these people who think they have something that they don't have. And that stinks. One of Satan's most effective deceptions is found in making people think that they have something that they in fact do not. It's in how he can get people to view and approach God apart from it being real and apart from it being true. This is how this whole mess started in the garden, isn't it? With Adam and Eve. Satan didn't come to the man and the woman and say, you need to fully reject God because there's, there's nothing true there. He came and he simply twisted what God wanted from them for relationship and blessing. He just twisted it. So, so he didn't remove it and take it away. He just caused them to think something that wasn't true about him and about what God wanted. That's how it all happened. When Solomon wrote this, at this time, the temple was up in Jerusalem, the economy was up in Israel, the prosperity of Israel was, was booming, was happening, and so the people's spirits were up. So the assumption, we're the people of God with the approval of God because everything is good, was very present at this time. We call this today Christendom. Has anybody ever heard that? term? Christendom. I call it Christianizing. We Christianize, right? America knows this very well, because after all, we had some um, um, believing, godly Christian forefathers that, that planted 
this, this nation, basically, that established it with documents that use the word God a lot. And so, because this is a godly nation that promotes our freedom of religion, which I praise God for, we all are associated, if we're an American, with God. He's for us. We're his. That's Christendom. And we've done that for a long time, where Christianity has been um, the, the biggest influence. And so people live as if they are, look as if they are, do things as if they are, talk as if they are, when they're not. If there's anything good that's come out of the decline and the deterioration that you and I have seen in our nation in the last 40, 50 years, that's the good thing that's coming out of it. Is that a line's been drawn and people are going to have to step to one side or the other. They can no longer just look like these people over here. Right? That's Christianism. If history has taught us anything, it's that when times are good, life is good, circumstances are good, worship's usually bad. That's just true in my life. Doesn't mean I don't thank God for things, but I do not press into God. I do not, I am not desperate for God when everything's good because I, I pretty much am taken care of. I really don't need anything. So I don't go there as much. And what Solomon's doing here in these seven verses is he's pulling the covers on the notion that Christendom, salvation by association, is what it means to have God. And it's not what it means to have God. Yeah, the wind is going to give me problems with my pages today, so it's going to happen. What Solomon's doing here is he's reinforcing that being associated with those who are the people of God, experiencing and enjoying the same things that they are, does not make you one. It may very well be something that is vain, empty, and fleeting. You may very well be an imposter. And I'm not saying that to hurt anyone this morning. I'm really starting this way so that we will all have a sound mind about us as we go through what it is that God's about to say to us. That we would honestly examine ourselves and where we're at. He starts in verse 1 by telling us to check ourselves as we approach God. Right? He says there, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. And, and really what Solomon is going to address in this whole section is um, what, what may be a possible vain religion, like I just said, that we, um, that, that we can see here, hopefully acknowledge evidences as to where we are. And this first one is, is in how we approach God, how we come to him. And he starts with uh, what we come to him for or what we come to Him to do, or what we come to Him to get. Why do we come to God? Why do you come to God? Why do you come to Him? For us today, this can be in the context of what we're doing right now. We're having a corporate worship service, all of us together, to hear His Word, to sing His praises, to pray with each other, to praise with each other, right? Why why do you come here? He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. What does that mean? Well, this is actually interesting. If you were to go to Israel today, I haven't been there. So I read about all this from people, so I'm going to go ahead and... I didn't fact check it, no. Actually, I fact checked it with a ton of guys. This is just true. When you go to Israel today, you will find a set of stairs that go up to the Temple Mount. And of course, the Temple Mount is where the temple used to stand. And I, I think it's particularly the south side which led to the main entrance of that temple when it was standing. And by the way, these are the same stairs, if you go there and see them, that Jesus would have walked on in his day. It's amazing to think about. 
But there's a weird thing about these stairs as you go up them. And that is that they are not all even. They're uneven. So you will come to a step, and it'll be a wide landing, followed by two steps with a small landing, followed by a step with a wide landing, followed by a step with, uh, you get the idea, all the way up. And you can think to yourself, like, these dudes were bad stair builders. Like, the temple's rad, but they didn't know how to do stairs, right? Like, like they just weren't, weren't, weren't very good at this type of thing. No, they were, they were like masters at this type of thing. They knew exactly what they were doing when it came to mason, masonry work, stonework, down to details that are ridiculous. So they knew exactly what they're doing. So the question has to become, like, why? If it was intentional that they built these steps that way, leading to the house of God, why did they do it? And the reason is so that all who went up to the house of God, you, me, the worshiper, would guard his steps on the way there. That's why. It was to help the worshiper be present here. To be present, to be careful, to be attentive, to be thoughtful, to be mindful about where it is he's going and what he's about to do. When we come together on Sundays to worship the Lord, do we come that way? Do we come careful? Do we come attentive? Do we come thoughtful? Do we come present? Mindful? Or do we become come because it's social? There's someone there we want to see? Or there's someone there that wants to see us? Or do we come because our other Sunday morning plans fell through? And there's like, I guess this is my Sunday morning recreational activity. I guess I'm going to church today. Do we come because we're checking the box of our sacrifice to God? Offering to God so that He'll favor us and He'll give us what we want or what we need? See, how we're coming to God when we approach Him matters, according to Solomon, because it has directly to do with why we are coming to God. What are we coming to Him for? So he goes on in verse 1 there to say, um, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To guard, or, or to draw near, to listen, is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. So we're told by Solomon here that there's two types of postures that we can come with. One being him who comes to hear, listen, receive from God. The other is the fool who comes to give God something, thinking that is he's that's how he's going to get something back. Is by his sacrifice, his offering what he does. The better way to come obviously, is with the anticipation and the expectation that God has something to give us. That He has something that we absolutely need when we come before Him. In other words, we come with a mindset to receive from Him rather than a mindset of gracing Him with an hour and a half of our precious time that we could have spent somewhere else with somebody else. See, the fool is me-centered. He's me-centered in work, deed, motive, and religious activity. This is why he's a fool. All he really thinks about is himself. But what he needs most when he comes to God is God. That's what he needs. His work for us, not our work for him. 
This is classic Mary and Martha, right? Like we all, we all know that story. They have this short window where Jesus pays a visit to their house. Jesus is coming to my house. And Jesus shows up. And Mary knows that there's nothing more important in the short time that she has with Jesus than Jesus. She knows there's nothing more important in that short time than what He has to say. Than to sit at His feet and receive it. But Martha... Martha's convinced that there's nothing more important in the short time that she has with Jesus than what she is able to do for Him. And by doing that, by thinking that way, she misses His visit completely. She misses Him. Completely. And at the end, He says this. He tells Martha, look, one thing is necessary. One thing is necessary. And your sister chose it. Right? And He says, Mary chose the better portion that will, what? Last. That will continue. That will go on. Whereas what Martha was doing when she had a short window with God was what she could do for him. And she missed, do you see the difference? Vain religion, vain approach to God, what I can do for Him, what I can sacrifice for Him, what I can offer to Him, and true religion, which is listening, receiving, absorbing God. Two different things. Jesus makes this statement over and over again in His teachings, He who has an ear, let him hear. He who has an ear, let him hear. What does He mean by this? He means that there is nothing more important, more necessary, more life-giving for us than to hear what He has to say. That's where life comes from. is to hear what He has to say to us. One of our great talents, especially men, is our ability to hear without listening. Or, or maybe it's just me, but I think it's probably not. Uh, I'm really good at hearing, so, so my, my eardrum vibrates when my wife speaks, but I have no idea what she's saying. No idea. No idea. It's like that, that person on the other end of the phone on Charlie Brown. You know, like that's all I'm hearing. Sorry, honey, not because you're annoying, but because I'm not listening. I did this for years at the dinner table, right? Growing up when our kids were younger, uh, that, was, that was one of the things that we did. We uh, made sure to have dinner together. As life got crazy, as, as, as things started to fill up and take up time, like it was a big deal for us all to sit down at the end of the day and have dinner together. And I don't know how many times I sat at that table without being there. I was physically present but mentally absent, completely. I don't know how many years I've done this in church. I grew up in church. From the day that I was born, I was in church every week, three times a week, because we went to a Church of Christ, and so it was Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and there was a sermon at every single one of them, right? So if you calculate that, I have no, no idea how many sermons I've sat here in my life, but it's a lot. But how many did I listen to? I don't know how many I ignored, or we can get caught up in this. I know no one else does, but um, we can hear sermons for other people. So like, gosh dang, that was rad. I'm glad my wife heard that today. Like, so my wife really need, or, or is so-and-so here? Because they really need to be hearing this right now. Oh yeah, they're here. Okay, awesome. Where, where you're just, you're hearing things for somebody else and not yourself. You're not listening. You're not owning. You're not appropriating that which God is saying. Right? 
And so there's, there's many ways that we can do this. And Solomon's saying, you know what's really good for you? What you really need is to personally own and receive what God is saying because He's saying it to you. He's saying it to you. The best um, compliments that a preacher can ever receive are not um, are not how uh, rad a speaker speakers we are. Not that we hit hit the sermon out of the park. You know what I mean? It's when somebody walks up to us and says, "God spoke to me today through the word that you brought." There is nothing that there is nothing that energizes us and charges us and fills our tanks more than to hear that God spoke to somebody. That God said something that may cause their life to never be the same as it was when they walked in that morning. That's what it, that's where the money is. Those are the best compliments that that we can get. Again, what is your primary motivation for approaching God? What's your primary ver- motivation for coming here? For going to church? Oh, the coffee's decent. Um, they got a cool name. The door is a cool name. Um, their pastries, their donuts, they're all right. They're pretty good. The sermon's not too long, except for when the one guy preaches. And then they're like super long. But otherwise, like the sermons aren't too long. The service isn't too long. Pastors are down to earth. It might be that you come because you want to raise your kids in a religious environment. It may come because the church is pretty close to your house, so convenience. There's all kinds of reasons why someone may come. But Solomon says we need to draw near first and foremost so that we're not found to be fools. So that we're not found to be fools. And we do that first by coming to listen to what God has to say to us. That's why we come. This is how it all works. If I may, real quick, read you Romans 10, just a little teensy section here, in which Paul the Apostle says, How will they, people that are lost, call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of who they have never heard? So hearing must come before believing. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So, conclusion, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. This is what you and I are doing every time we come. Our faith is being built. It is being matured. It is being stretched. It is being strengthened. Every time we come and we sit at the feet of Jesus and hear and receive and own what it is He has to say to us. This is where life is found. This is where blessing is found. This is where joy is found. Even in the midst of complete chaos and horrific circumstances for the Christian is when we come and we just sit at the feet of the one who has the words that we desperately need. It's amazing what that does to us, what that does for us. This is our lifeline. This is our IV as Christians. If you cannot hear from God for yourself, 
and this is the bummer, you will spend an eternity apart from him. That's how serious this is. That's how big of a deal it is that we come and we listen. But vain religion says, I went to church every Sunday this month. I gave to a, uh, some food to a homeless man. I listened to worship music in my car. So we're good. Like he's down with me. Again, one of Satan's greatest, most effective tactics is bringing people to a place where they're comfortable in a vain, empty religion while thinking that everything with God is fine. We must each receive revelation from God to have life in God, period. So let's get just a little bit more personal here. Some of you are like, we ain't getting through this sermon. We're going to get through it. We're going to do it. Second thing is found in verses 2 and 3, vain religion in our prayers. In our prayers. It says, uh, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, you're on earth. Therefore, let your words be few for a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. Just like we can become, uh, come foolishly in our vain religion before God with our sacrifices and offerings and reliance upon what we can provide for ourselves as a basis for God's acceptance and favor, we can do the same things with our communication and with our speech, our prayers to God. It, it's, a, it's, it's so odd. We live in such a, like a, Jesus is my homeboy, Jesus is my bestie, Jesus is my ride or die, Christian culture, actually the last one's kind of true, um, it just sounds stupid, um, but like, that's kind of like the Christian culture that we live in, um, to, to the point to where we can forget who and where he is, and who and where we are. We can actually f- sever that. Our conversation to him can be all about us, again, what we need, what we want, what we desire, what we need fixed, what we need changed, and that's fine. Like Jesus invites us to come to the Father for those things with petitions. But if that's all we're doing all the time is coming to God because of what he can give us, we may want to back up a little bit because he is so much more than that. He's so much more than that. When it's all about us, we can become quick to speak, and our words can oftentimes be reckless and thoughtless. Or as it says here in the text, rash and hasty. See, a, a fool speaks to God in ways that attempt to gain God's favor as well as a favorable outcome towards what's being asked. We have a word for that. It's called manipulation. Did I say that right? I always get made fun of because I do it with a U, manipulation. And someone's like always laughs at me. Manipulation, right? God's, God's really just, at that point, the means to the end of what we want or need from him. This is much like the prodigal son. We all remember the prodigal son. He didn't care anything about actually having a relationship with his dad. He just wanted his dad's stuff. That's what, that, that's what went down there. And, and woe to us if that's what we're about with the father. And I know sometimes we are. We can't get away from that sometimes. Do we know who it is that we're approaching when we approach him? Do we really consider who it is we're approaching? Do we really consider who it is we're talking to? Because it's not our bestie. It is the one who said to Moses, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. It's the one of whom Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am undone. 
and I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live in the midst of a people with unclean lips. In other words, I'm not even in a position of any type of worthiness on any level to answer you or to talk to you or to have a conversation with you. It is the one of who it is said, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow and give glory to Him. In other, in other words, when God appears, nobody has a choice. The God-fearer and the God-hater all will be down on their knees giving glory to God. No one will be able to resist who God is when He comes. Even His biggest enemies. It is the one in whom Solomon says here, lives in heaven over everything under the sun while we live on earth. Right? So, so what this means is that we're at the complete mercy of him, not the other way around. He is not a genie in our lamp that we can rub whenever we want something. He is the almighty God, the maker of heaven and earth, the voice of the burning bush, the Holy One who is unapproachable because He is so holy. Have you ever met someone of great importance in your life? Just think about it this way. Um, if you haven't, that's pretty sad. Um, no, I'm, I'm just kidding. That was supposed to be a joke. I, I wasn't really bagging on you. Um, I remember, this kind of puts it in perspective for me. So when I was cleaning chimneys for years, um, my wife would just write out a schedule for the day, and during the busy season, there's like, you know, six, seven slots. And so I'm just like, go, like getting to them as I'm going down them, knocking them off. So I, I come to this one, and it says Dan Fouts, and I'm like, I'm like, Dan Fouts, like, I know that name from somewhere. Like, that sounds like super familiar, right? And it was out like towards Sisters in Plainview. And so, um, I start getting there, and it's this huge gated place, like up on its own hill. And I'm like, wow, this dude's really important, you know, whoever he is. And then it hits me like, oh, Dan Fouts, like, he was a, like a quarterback for the Chargers in the 80s because I grew up in Southern California, and like Chargers games would be on the TV. I remember seeing, you know, Dan Fouts. This dude was kind of a, a hero. And so I pull up, and here's like this really nice big house. And I'm like, dude, like, this is weird. And then I, and then he comes out the front door to meet me, and it was like, oh, dude, it's Dan Fouts, you know? And so I'm like, like this is kind of cool, isn't it, you know? So he had like three fireplaces uh, that, that I had to clean. And what happened is that he became um, a friend. Like he was really down to earth. After I was done doing the cleanings, we would go sit in his office where he was studying games for CBS at the time. And we would just sit around and this dude just looked at me like a person, you know, and, and treated me really well. We ended up coming back every single year to do his chimneys. But what I found myself doing every, when that time of the year would come around and I knew I was going to Dan's house is I would make sure I would wash my car. I would clean it out really good. I would put on the best clothes I had instead of putting on a hat that day. I started like combing my hair. And then when I was there with him, like I would be super careful in the way that I talked to him and interacted with him and, and approached him. You know what I mean? Because this is a dude that was of great importance. How much more important is the God of the universe than Dan Fouts? You know what I'm saying? How much more important? How much more mindful should I be of how I approach him? Of what I say to him? Of how I visit him? And you. And look, God is good. Like, we're not strangers, right? We're close. So we can be transparent. We can be real. He knows us better than we know ourselves. 
But the truth is that He is worthy of our honor in the greatest ways that we can bring it to Him because of who He is in contrast to who we are. Right? That's really what's kind of the heart of what Solomon is is getting us to consider here. Um, I have no idea where I'm at. A fool, because his religion is empty, will be prone to think that God is impressed with things like word count. Anybody do this? I, I do. Like, I'll admit it. Like, there's times I've got caught up in this, right? We, we can think that somehow we can coerce God or convince God or persuade God by the amount of speech, the amount of time spent in our prayers and the quality of craftsmanship of our prayers, right? Like, like if I use King James language when I pray, that's, that's, that's the, the key that's going to unlock the vault of God's goodness, kindness, and blessing, right? Or if I tag on in Jesus' name at the end, then, then we're, we're good, we're rocking, Right? Like, that's the key that will unlock the vault of God's goodness and favor and blessing. Or if I spend enough time talking to him, that's the key that unlocks that vault. If I, if I pray him a sermon and quote as many verses as I possibly can, if I can, if I can teach him back the word of God, which is actually his, which he's the author of, then, then that'll unlock the vault of his goodness, kindness, favor. Like, we, we do stupid things like that. And then we look at Jesus we look at the, 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 third, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, when in teaching us how to pray, prays using 52 words. If, if you're looking at it in the Greek, it's 57. It's not many. The words are not many, and the words are not flashy. If you look at his prayer, they're sincere, and they're to the point. Why? Well, he tells us in Matthew 6, right before Jesus teaches us, his prayer, the disciples come to him and they say, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And he goes, yeah, okay, but before I do that, i got to tell you something. Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. What's being implied there? They won't. They won't. He says, don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you even ask Him. He knows what you need. Like first, before you even know you need to go and tell him something. The reason is because he is in heaven, like Solomon says, over and above everything, and we are not. Do you know why so many of us heap up our words in prayer? At least for me, um, a lot of times it's because I'm not thoughtful about my prayers. I'm just not very thoughtful about them. So they can become indirect. I, I just kind of keep talking in circles and, and moving down the road in, until I actually figure out what actually needs to be said. You know, And that's okay too. I, I'm sure he forgives us for that. <laughs> um, but that, uh, I'm just not very thoughtful. And so sometimes you just sit there and you keep turning the combination on the safe, you know, trying to hear clicks. Kind of recklessly and kind of carelessly. There was a lady named Annie Dillard that once wrote this. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke in our prayers? Or as I suspect, does not, do we not believe one word of it? Churches are like children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up batches of TNT. It is madness to wear ladies don velvet hats to church while instead we should all be wearing crash helmets. 
Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews, for the sleeping God may someday awake and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. Now, that might be a little extreme. But maybe you and I aren't extreme enough with how we approach God when we come to Him. Your approach to God matters. Your communication with God matters. Your understanding of who He is and who you are matters. I'm often better off when when I don't know what to pray. Like, I don't know about you. Uh, this happened to me a couple weeks ago where there was just so much going on um, inside of me that um, that I was desperate to, to go to him. But I had no idea what I was going to say when I got there. Like, I, I didn't know how to put together words. I didn't know how to articulate um, what I was feeling and what was going on inside me. But we know we have to go there. Where else can we go? You alone have the words of life, right? Just like Peter says. Like, there is nowhere else we can go in our deepest, darkest, most depressing moments. And so I went to him. And I just sat there before him and opened myself up and said, just do your thing, right? Make your interpretations. And um, my soul, in those times, it, it, that my, my soul that night a couple of weeks ago is just pouring forth Loads of information like a fire hose without one word ever being spoken. And God's attending to every bit of it. Romans 8 assures us of this. It tells us about this, how the, how the Spirit intercedes and handles business for us when we can't handle business with God. God attends to that. He's happy to. He knows. The vain religion of the fool convinces him that it's all about what he does, but the true relation, religion of the child of God knows it's all about him, who he is, and how he interacts with us, and what he's capable of, what he has done. Prayer is not a thoughtless exercise because approaching God, approaching the divine, is not a thoughtless exercise. And finally, Solomon addresses vain religion in our promises. This one's a little odd. Look at verses 4 through 6. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? What, we're, what are we talking about here? Where's Solomon going here? He's going to bargaining. Anyone bargain with God ever? Promises? Right? Our word. We give him our word. God, if you do this, I promise to do that. Or because you've done this, I promise to do that. The fool does this because it is an attempt at the manipulation of God's will, much like prayer is. Let's play, let's make a deal. If I make a deal, then like maybe God will... Do you guys remember what happened when Abraham and God made a deal? God put him to sleep. They went to have a covenant together and walked through the pieces to bind that covenant. God puts Abraham to sleep because he knows that it's an impossibility for Abraham to keep his end of the deal. I don't think that you and I want to do that, like make deals with God, unless we can be certain to keep up. Do you? 
I don't think we want to do that. And yet I think that we do this all the time. God, just get me out of this pinch and, and I promise whatever. This is why you and I have a skepticism about jailhouse conversions, don't we? Even though I am one. It's, it's because what we're looking at is people whose backs are up against the wall because of something that they did. And so their circumstance is extremely bleak, desperate. And we do a lot of things and we say a lot of things in our desperate circumstances. And so I think sometimes we look at some of these things in a little, with a little bit of skepticism and think, how real is this? How serious was this person? How honest and genuine were their words, right? Our bargaining with God can so easily be promises and vows of desperation due to circumstance rather than desperation due to complete surrender to his will. We're almost there, by the way. We're almost, we're almost there. So um, our bargaining with God can so easily be promises and vows of desperation due to circumstance rather than desperation due to complete surrender of his perfect will. Sometimes our vows and our confident words can also be the way, a way that we can showcase our dedication and level of spirituality to others. I don't know if you've ever done this one. I have. Doug Wilson says, talking to others about what you will do is a good, low-cost way to enhance your reputation at the church. Right? Sometimes we just want to impress people with our religion or with our vain religion. We want to look good. We want to appear righteous or religious before others. And what does God think about that? Two names. Ananias, Sapphira. Right? Like, like scary. So we have, we have this example of a word given, a promise made, a vow. Right in the in the New Testament, nonetheless, right, Paul? Where'd Paul go? Scary. Um, and so we have this couple that they're all at that time. The church is fully unified. There's a little bit of pressure on them, and so they're coming together. They they are taking care of each other in community, like a community of love would do. And so they're selling the people with excess are selling the things they have, and they're distributing everything so that nobody's lacking, right? And Ananias and Sapphira come around, and they publicly say, and they didn't have to. But they publicly say, we're going to go sell everything too and bring it to you. Bring the money to you. And they go and they sell everything and bring part of the money and keep part of it back. And the Holy Spirit then, at that point, drops them. Right? They said they were going to do something else. They could have. They could have done something else. That wasn't the issue. It's that they promised something and broke it. Broke it. How grateful are we? How grateful are you right now that you are not the example of how serious God takes broken vows? I praise God that it was ANS and not me. Right? Because I do. I do all the time. We weren't His example. Praise God. Have you ever considered how different we'd live? How different you would live right now, today, if this is how God still dealt with broken vows. How much of a difference would that make in your walk? It would make a lot in mine. Just because He doesn't immediately kill us, like go do things this way, doesn't mean He doesn't care. It doesn't mean He doesn't deal with those things in our life still. See, it's His loving kindness, patience, and mercy, even with our broken vows, that we ultimately depend on, isn't it, in our life? 
That's why we can make so many promises and not really think twice about it. It's because we depend on those other attributes, the ones that are not his judgment, <laughs> right? Think for a moment about all the vows we make. Um, I know this isn't one that we made, but um, back, in the, back in the 90s, like I went to like two promise keepers. And I just want to say that's the worst name that a Christian ministry could ever have. You know what I'm saying? Promise keepers. And you've got failures coming in and filling stadiums. Failures as as husbands. Failures as employees. Failures as Christians. Failures as parents. And they're coming in and they're making vows. They're making promises that they're going to be different. Which is an impossibility. They are the reason why they already have a problem. We need to come in and we need to find our hope and find our progress and our release from these things in Jesus' ability to keep promises. And so a lot of these guys are going back home. They're all gung-ho for two weeks. Maybe they're even doing good. Maybe they're even making good on some of the promises they make. But boom, before you know it, they're falling back into failure. They're falling back into failure. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with you is you're the problem. You can't make a promise like this because you are unable to keep it. You must rely fully and exclusively and wholly on the person and work of Christ and his ability to do these things in you and through you. It's all about him and what he can do. Because when he makes a vow, he can keep it. He's kept every single one of them. Every one of them. Um, Wedding vows. I don't even like really want to talk about this one. I, I do a lot of weddings. I'll admit it. I don't like the part where, of the ceremony that you come to where vows are exchanged. I just don't like it anymore. It's not, not because I think it's meaningless or doesn't have value. I think it does. I think that's part of the reason why I don't like getting to it anymore. Um, be, because I know that, that when they do it, there's a good chance of it being broken. You know. And in all honesty, I just soon removing that part of the formalities altogether at some, at some time. Uh, not, not because I think that what's taking place is not serious, but because the chances are that the, the people you're marrying these days don't. And um, it's a challenge. When I find myself at a kitchen table or on a couch sitting across from a couple that's wanting to end their marriage, this is what I appeal to first. This is what I bring up first. This is what I go back to first are the vows. What were your vows? Let me hear them. Let the other person hear. You hear them. And I do it to hope that it will spark some weight. Because it should. Those are things that we made before God. It should spark weight. And most of the time, they don't. What you'll hear is, yeah, but we were young. Or, I just made a mistake. Or, I don't feel that way anymore. And God will forgive me. So it's not that big of a deal. That's his job. That's his job. Again, why is it that we are really okay with throwing our vows out the window? And it's because we have no fear of God's immediate judgment. We will live, unlike Ananias and Sapphira, we will move on, we will remarry, we will likely find happiness with someone else, no harm, no foul. We do it in court, testifying to truth. I don't even know if we still do this. I'm assuming we do, right? What does it matter if we vow before God to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God, and then sit down and lie? You know? Because he probably won't pay us an immediate visit. That's why. <laughs> like, we, we kind of like bank on that, 
right? Others have done it and live. I probably will too. Baby dedications, you know, our promises that we make in parenting, only to find ourselves fail and fall short in so many ways, on so many levels. And some of you are like, well, I'm not married, I never testified in court, and I don't have kids, so I'm like, I'm good. Like, I'm good. Well, how many times have you said, God, just heal me, then, boom. Or, if you just give me that job, then, or God, if you just don't let my girlfriend be pregnant this time, then, or if you get me out of this and into this, then, then what? Then what? I'll serve you more. I'll read my Bible more. I'll go to church more. I'll give you 11% instead of 10% of my finances. Right? I'll pray more. I'll stop looking at porn. I'll stop drinking. I'll stop cheating on my taxes. On and on and on we go. I'm sure we can find one for everybody here. So that we're all included. Right? We all do it in some way. And God is not fooled. And God is not mocked. And God is not indifferent to our vows. He takes those seriously. So he may not go Ananias and Sapphira on us, but he may very well bring judgment and consequence upon us for our empty promises in other ways. In other ways. And this is the last part of verse 6, really. This is really what Solomon's saying here, there. Is why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? This is why he's saying it's better not to vow than to vow and not be able to keep it. It's better that you just don't make promises to God. Because if you make one and you break it, then he's going to be angry at your voice and he's going to destroy the work of your hands. So just don't do it. Just don't do it. See, God, God does care. He does see. He does listen. It does matter to him still. And this verse assures us that God may work out his judgment in other ways that do go on and affect our lives. There's consequences. I'm sure I suffer some of those in my life from just different forms of stupidity in my approach and my words to God. You know? See, at the bottom line is that a vain, empty, vaporous religion says God accepts me on the basis of what I do do. What I do do is enough. So like when I fail or I do something stupid with him, like it doesn't matter because what I do do outweighs what I don't do. It's a real thinking. And the mindset and the approach to God, that mindset and approach to God is foolish and false, just like Satan likes it. Just like it was with the most religious people that ever lived, the Pharisees thinking that everything they were doing was enough for them. That God owed them His favor because of how committed they were, how religious they were, how devout they were, how busy they were. There's a verse that we all love. It's found in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. It's probably even on some of your refrigerators. I don't know. It should be if it isn't. It says this, If God is for us, who can be against us? And we should all say, Amen. We love that verse, don't we? But what if you what if you turned it around? It would say, if God is against me, who can be for me? And I know that's not what that verse says, but we do have that doctrine clearly laid out to us also in the Bible. That's bleak, and it's a biblical truth. So some of you are going, where's the hope, dude? Like what you're just like killing us and dismantling us, and then we're just gonna pray and say, be warm and filled. No, we're not gonna do that. Here we go. What is the answer to all of this that Solomon is laying out here? Where is our hope? Where is true religion found as opposed to vain religion? And how is it found? 
How can our relationship and our worship become pleasing and real to the God of the universe? Verse 7 is how. When dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one that you must fear. God is the one that you must fear. This is how. Without the fear of God, there is no relationship with God. And some of this is going to sound weird right now to some of you. But I want you to listen. Without the fear of God, there is no relationship with God. It all begins with fear. Now I'm going to step that up a little bit and make it even more bold in this statement. If you do not fear God, then you cannot have life with God. Period. If you do not fear God, you cannot have a life with God. End of story. Some of you are like, well, wait a minute. Like God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. My Bible says, yeah, for those who know Him, for those who are in Christ Jesus now, I have no fear of condemnation from God. I've been saved from that. I've been set free from that. And so, for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is not a spirit of fear that we have now towards anything that this world or anyone in this world that comes at us can throw at us. No fear. This is not a true statement or a comfort or an assurance in any way for the one who does not know God. There should be a lot of fear. See, our our biggest problem is not that we have a hard life or that we go through trials in our life or that we just need to try harder to be better people so that God will accept us. Our problem is that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all approached Him wrong. We have all bought into false religion in our own ways. We have all made promises we cannot keep and have broken. That's the reality. All have sinned and fall short of His righteousness and His complete righteous standard. And because of that, we're on the wrong side of God trying, attempting to make things right that we're incapable of making right. We can't do it. I don't care what your terms are, what your strategy is, whatever it is you think you figured out, it's not going to be enough. It's not going to be enough. See, we need to be saved from Him, by Him, for Him, or we will die. For those that are not in Christ, there is nothing to look forward to. There is only horror that is coming. Because God is going to exact those things. Every one of them, He's got a list. And it's pretty accurate that we fall short in. We need Christ to come and erase the list with His blood. This is what we need. And only a fear of God will take us there, to Christ. I am a jailhouse conversion. A lot of you know that. I was um, just being stupid and stupid things. Um, kind of my idol, actually, my God in my life at that time, that that took me to a place where I I had to do six months and they gave me a deck of cards and a Bible like a lot of you know. And when I finally opened that Bible because I spent, it was a basically isolation. It wasn't bunk rooms or anything like that. It was your own concrete cell with you and a deck of cards and a Bible 22 hours out of the day alone in there. And so when I finally flipped the Bible open to read it and went to the book of Revelation because I thought that it was going to be more interesting than the other books, um, something happened to me. 
as I'm moving through this book, there's this thing that's, that's building up inside of me. And it was fear. There was an overwhelming fear that was coming over me because what I'm reading about and what's unfolding and getting worse and worse and worse is this progression of the wrath of God upon the inhabitants of the earth that do not obey him by believing in his son. And I, and I see him coming and, and exacting the payment owed to that group of people. And I knew, I knew that I was in that group. I knew that that's the group that I belonged to, that I had my allegiance to. And I'm reading through this and the fear is just building and building and building. And then it comes to Christ coming with an army, a great multitude behind him, dressed in white. And I knew that I needed to somehow go from this team to this team. Why? Because of fear. Because of fear of the wrath of God, which I fully and completely deserved. And you did too. See, that fear of God took me to Jesus. The fear of God and what he owed me took me to his son. That's why we call it good news. We call it good news is because the bad news is that we're on the wrong side of God, naturally. We need to figure out how to get to the good side of God. And that's exactly what I did that day is I cried out when I realized you get to the end of the book and it's like the Lord says, come and the spirit and the bride say, come. And I'm reading this invitation. Oh, I can't, I can switch. Like I, even what I've done and who I am right now without doing a thing for you, without dropping anything in the offering box, without knowing how to pray, without not reading my Bible well, you're inviting me to switch teams. And I did. I cried out to God and said, what, what must I do for this to be right? And you know what did it? Fear of who he is and what he owed me. If you do not have that, there's no reason to go to him. That's why Jesus came to earth, right? The ones who come to him are the ones who are sick and know they need a doctor. The ones who don't come are the ones that think, everything's great. I got this thing licked. I got it handled. It's taken care of. Everything's good. And so they don't seek out a spiritual doctor, right? This is really what we're talking about here. How do you know you're sick? Because you're by, the Word of God tells you you are. And so fear takes us to Jesus so that we might be saved. Some of you are reading this and going, gosh, I do some of this stuff right now. It's like, yeah, so do I. Praise God for the blood of Christ. Praise God for, for Christ covering those things, for his righteousness being credited to my account so that God's no longer got this stuff under a microscope. And again, it doesn't mean that you and I won't suffer consequences if we walk through these things with, without even thinking of them. But there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. These are not the things that are going to put us away forever from God because of the work of Christ. Right? And then what Christ did when I received him when he received me, I should say, is he gave me this thing called the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And that's where, where things really started moving. That's where I started actually understanding what I was reading instead of for years growing up going like, I need an interpreter for this book. Like this is like Paul was talking about with the Old Testament. Like what the heck's going on here? Like none of it meant anything. Now I have some eyes that can see. I have some ears that can hear. I have a mind that can understand because the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God is working in me. He's rewiring me. 
so that I can have a mind like his and desires like his rather than the one I used to have. So now I can even learn how to approach him. I can even learn what's acceptable and unacceptable in approaching God so that I may approach God right, so that I may talk to him right, so that the sacrifices I do offer are right. This is what we all need. The woman at the well, I think of, tells Jesus, right? Um, our fathers used to worship on this hill. Yours, you guys worship in Jerusalem on, on your temple. And Jesus is like, da-da-da-da. The Father is seeking those who worship him in spirit and in truth. There's going to be a day coming, lady, when they do not worship here and they do not worship there, but all who worship the Father must worship him in spirit and in truth. And that's the difference between vain religion that's empty and a true religion is that we have Christ indwelling us, the mind of Christ in us, the Spirit of God moving us, teaching us, guiding us, propelling us forward. And that is where you and I are able to walk into and find and be blessed by true religion, relationship, worship. Does that make sense? Lord, thank you so much. Um that you are so patient. Thank you that you don't just strike us down immediately when we fall short. No, no one would exist if that's how it happened. And so we just acknowledge your patience, your kindness, your long-suffering God towards us, towards the people that are contrary to you. And we thank you for providing a way. We thank you that for those who receive and believe your word, there is no condemnation. And our fears can then be relieved and replaced because of the faith that you grant us in your son and his work. That there are only good things, only blessings that are ahead for the child of God, not curse. And so thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for allowing us to approach you, people who shouldn't be allowed to, because of what you've done. And it's to your glory that we sing these praises. Amen.